This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Max Winter, author of the novel Exes. The novel focuses on Clay Blackall's search to piece together his estranged brother's last decade of life before his suicide. The novel is told through various points of views and forms like diary entries and notes. The characters who illuminate Clay's brother Eli's life include his ex-girlfriend, his ex-cellmate, and his ex-students. We began the discussion talking about the fragmented nature of the novel's structure. It felt very organic to me, its form, and it grew out of the sort of central question of the book, which is how does one process loss? How does one deal with, you know, lingering trauma and the unavoidable presence of an absence? And for me, it really took the form of every moment in time existing up until that point simultaneously. I feel like that's the shape of trauma in a way is just the inherent overlapping of time and the extent to which the present contains, holds the past um, and every layer of past in it. Um, And that's sort of where the shape came from. It sort of organically grew out of that state of mind. Um, I think of it um, it, I, my publisher calls it a novel in fragments, which I'm, I'm fine with. Um, and it makes a certain amount of sense and it helps explain it to the reader in a very sort of nice shorthand way. Um, but I think of it more as a novel in fractals, um, just sort of these endlessly repeating world shapes that appear not to be symmetrical at first, but from a distance reveal I believe their symmetry. So basically, the narrative in this is that Clay Blackall, his younger brother Eli, ha- has committed suicide, and he was estranged from him for ten years. Yeah. And then he's just trying to sort of piece Eli's life back together. Their relationship—it's probably also his way of mourning. And by doing this, he is getting narratives from his his ex-girlfriends, from his ex-girlfriend's ex-boyfriend, from friends, from classmates, from students, and piecing this together. Yeah, it's it's basically the book's shape you know, grows out of the process that you describe, which is Clay's piecing together of these lost years um, and quilting them uh, into something that will I mean, it's a it's a doomed effort on his part um, because he's trying to claim and understand something that he he can neither claim nor understand. Um, but in that process, in that sort of ritual, um, invasive, obsessive behavior, um, he is able to express and attempt to understand his own grief. And did you have an experience like that? Where, what was this book born from? A number of things, really. Um, most immediately, my wife, her previous boyfriend killed himself. 
Um, oh, this was about four years before we met. Um, and she was still and still is very much dealing with that. Um, and I was there with her on this process, on this journey um, of towards understanding, towards um, accepting this loss. Um, and I was there when it would recede the pain of that loss. And I was there when it would suddenly surge back. Um, and so it was something that I always was trying to help her with, um, the best I could, um, which as often as not meant simply being there and, and listening to her, um, as opposed to like actively comforting her, um, which was as often as not, not welcome, um, and not particularly helpful. It was unwelcome because it was unhelpful because really there's very little you can do, um, as a partner, um, but simply be there for someone who's processing <clears throat> this kind of pain. Um, and we, um, you know, it was obviously something we would talk about a great deal, um, and live with, um, and on some level, my book was my attempt to understand what she was dealing with, um, fictionally, narratively, which is really the only way I fully understand anything. Not that I fully understand it even then, but it's the best way I know how to understand things. And did you talk to her about it when you were writing it or did you sort of keep it as your own thing? No, uh, I talked about it with her a great deal um, from the start. I mean, first and foremost, I asked her if it was okay um, if I wrote something that was inspired by, on some level, inspired by what she was going through. And she said, of course, um, she was um, in many ways uh, moved and, and excited by my um, project. Uh, which sounds self-serving, but it really isn't because that's, my wife is an artist among many other things. Um, and so she, it's something that she has been expressing and attempting to understand through her work as well. Um, she's a visual artist. So her work of course is very different than mine. Um, and much more immediate and much more, um, efficiently made. <laughs> um, but she, was very much um, supportive of my attempts to kind of fictionalize not her story at all, because clearly Clay Blackall couldn't be less like my wife um, in every single way. Um, but just simply to, to understand that kind of time, that sort of traumatic time, um, the loss and the presence of that loss over time. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. My guest is Max Winter, author of the novel Exes. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Do we as the reader learn more about Clay or Eli? That's a good question. Uh, 
I feel like we learn more about Clay in many respects, um, if only because Clay is mediating Eli. And even when it's other people mediating Eli, um, Elise, uh, Rob from a distance, we're still, we still have Clay as the sort of authorial figure, the editorial figure. And he's a particularly invasive and meddlesome editor. Um, so in that process, we, I think, almost inevitably learn more about Clay than we do about Eli. And that's also what my book is about, really, is sort of the, the limits of solipsism and the dangers inherent in solipsism. Not that it's sort of a moral judgment against Clay, um, but I think we can't help but see his flaws um, and see the extent to which they trap him and abnegate him. And of course, in the process, trap and abnegate Eli. So let's talk about some of the characters that illuminate Eli. The first, the one I'm thinking about the most, Elise. Um, she was a student of Eli's when he taught high school, although she was 18. He was 22. Yes. And they got together and she's kind of one of the epicenters of this book. So can you talk a little bit about her personality and how she fits in and Clay's kind of thoughts about her? Elise is probably my favorite character in the book um, in many respects. Um, The one I feel closest to. And I feel like, yeah, she holds the closest thing to the truth about Eli of any of the characters. Um, I feel like she knows or knew Eli better than certainly than Clay did and certainly than any other character did. She's also in many ways the most reliable of all the characters because she's sort of uniquely predisposed to be honest about her experience in a way that some of the other characters quite aren't for reasons of guilt, absence, um, any combination thereof. And she sort of saw his failings as a human, like his lack of knowing who he really is, his proclivity to maybe self-destruct with substances. He loved her in a way that she didn't love him back. And you really saw that he was kind of a tragic figure. She, she saw the, the real him because so much of his personality was performative or was hidden, um, but she got to see as many sides of him as anyone did. And I feel like she is able to kind of honor that because of what you described, the fact that he loved her more than she loved him, which is a source of pain for both of them in the end. And I was interested in writing about that ironically shared pain of the imbalanced relationship. This terrible failure to connect on the same terms and the lingering pain of that um, is what haunts her, along with, of course, Eli's self-destruction. Because she does care about him, uh, I think pretty clearly, but was unable to help him. Uh, Nobody could, really. Um, And if her chapter acknowledges or addresses anything it addresses that the extent to which he was beyond anyone's help really 
You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Max Winter, author of the novel Exes. Our interview was recorded on Skype. And one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading this, that it was almost as much of a portrait of a community and a place as it was trying to dissect Eli and who he was. And in that way, I thought it was maybe a love letter to Providence, although yeah. it wasn't all good. But can you talk about Providence as as almost like its own character in here? And that's where it really started for me. I tried to write about Providence, which is where I grew up, um, ever since I started writing. Uh, from the first thing I wrote to the most recent thing I've written, Providence figures heavily. It's my home. Uh, I have a very complicated relationship with it, and that's sort of clear from the book. But it really is, as I describe it on the page, just a kind of dizzying, layered place for me um, because I'm forever finding my bearings by way of absent landmarks of things that are no longer there. And that sort of ghostly after image of everything I've ever experienced in this place and everyone I've ever known and lost is sort of constantly palpable to me. Um, it makes it a, a very difficult place to live in a, in a lot of ways, but it makes it a very rich place to write about. I do feel like Providence is a character. Um, immediately in my day-to-day -day life, I talk about Providence as though it were a person. And so inevitably, I write about it that way as well. I had marked a page where it said, um, a diner-shaped hole, these absent landmarks must vex out-of-towners hoping to follow a local's directions. So you're saying, you know, take a left where something used to be and just where this used to be. And I think that's common for people who've been in places for a long time because of progress and change and gentrification. And is this book in some way saying that our life is defined by our loss? I, th I think so. I mean, certainly if those losses are significant enough, they are the, the experience that shapes your daily life. Um, and they can't help but color the way you see the world around you. It's, you know, it is like a glass half full, half empty sort of scenario in that regard. Um, although I reject the idea that it's a binary, that it's an either or, um, it really depends on a number of things and that's ever changing. It's ever shifting. But yeah, I feel like Providence, what makes it interesting to me is it's provincialism. Um, and the extent to which not only do people here inevitably refer to absent landmarks, but they also refer to the things that replace them by the name that they once had. So for example, Eastside Marketplace to a certain kind of Rhode Islander, a certain kind of Providence citizen is going to always be IGA. And people will look at them like, you know, what are you talking about? And, and I do this too. I do it by accident. But there are those of us who do it on purpose, who do it proudly, um, a sort of kind of stubbornness that's born into the place, in part because it's the butt of many jokes, um, in part of, because it's the small estate, um, 
and in part because it's a kind of it's a fraught place it's it's a place that's depending on what part of town you're on a very different place for different people um it is because on some level it is yes it's a capital city and it is a urban space but it's also a college town uh, in a lot of ways and you feel that tension between the east and west sides wherever you go i feel like you feel its absence in certain parts of town, um, the kind of ignorance born of privilege. But I feel like if you're aware of that dichotomy, you're going to sense again that absence very palpably. It reminds me of one of my favorite jokes, which is the story of this Jewish castaway. And he's found on this tiny desert island, not much bigger than a backyard. And he's rescued and his rescuers notice not only his presence, but the presence of two synagogues. He's the sole inhabitant of this desert island. And the rescuer says, do you, do you mind if I ask you why two synagogues? And he's like, this one I go to and this one I wouldn't set foot in. I left out the important part, which is that the castaway built these two synagogues. But it's this idea that you need to define yourself by what you don't do. Um, that's really interesting to me. And yeah, it doesn't matter how small the space is. It can be, you know, population one. You almost have to build that space that you won't enter, that you don't feel welcome in, that you don't feel a part of in order to feel more a part of the space that you are welcome in, that you do recognize as your own. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. My guest is Max Winter, author of the novel Exes. Our interview was recorded on Skype. One of the things that's interesting when you're talking about pain is also the the presence of comedy and that Sometimes it brings levity. Sometimes it's a pain after time. I'm wondering if you can talk about the inclusion of comedy within this. To me, it was a funny story and a sad story. I mean, the idea of comedy being pain is nothing new. But I still feel like on some level, the literary world, such as it is, is resistant to that notion. I was overhearing a very well-respected agent talking about the extent to which literary critics sometimes have a have a problem with comedy they don't know how to deal with it they don't know how to talk about it or write about it and so they simply ignore it or they see it worst case scenario as a failing as a sort of cheap gimmick or arbitrary stylistic gesture but to me i always felt intrinsic i don't know i mean like when you go to a funeral as often as not you spend as at least as much time laughing as you do crying. In fact, there's almost always like a one-to-one index. It's remarkable, um, but inevitable because people tell stories and the stories we tell as often as not are funny. Those are the stories we want to tell. I mean, how often does your friend tell you an action-packed story? Your friend almost never tells you an action-packed story or a plot-driven story. It's almost always a funny story with little asides and jokes within jokes and surprising bits of dialogue and behavior, even when they're telling you a sad story, even when they're talking about their departed friend, they're remembering the funniest thing that 
person did. And I feel like that was a big part of the book. For me, humor is a leavening agent on some level. It provides relief to the heavier, darker moments, but it's also a way to express that darkness. There's a butt of every joke, which is one way of saying that humor is cruel, but it's another way of saying that humor is conflict. Can you share a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? It's uh, from Leonard Michaels in the 50s. I had a friend named Chicky who drove his chopped, blocked, stripped, dual exhaust Ford convertible while vomiting out the fly window into a telephone pole. He survived, lit a match to see if the engine was all right, and it blew up in his face. I saw him in the hospital. Through his bandages, he said that ever since high school, he'd been trying to kill himself because his girlfriend wasn't good looking enough. He was crying and laughing while he pleaded with me to believe that he really had been trying to kill himself because his girlfriend wasn't good looking enough. I told him that I was going out with a certain girl and he told me that he had fucked her once, but it didn't matter because I could take her away and live somewhere else. He was a Sicilian kid with a face like Caravaggio's Angels of Debauch. He'd been educated by priests and nuns. When his hair grew back and his face healed, his mind healed. He broke up with his girlfriend. He wasn't nearly as narcissistic as other men I knew in the 50s. Do you want to say anything else about that? The, the, whole, the book that it comes from, I would have saved them if I could, is if you could see the copy now, you would see the extent to which this is true, is one that I bring with me literally everywhere I go whenever I leave the house for more than 24 hours because it means so much to me. Um, and that's why I directly acknowledge his work in the book that I wrote um, because I felt like I might as well just, <laughs> in the interest of transparency, put him in the page, on the page, um, because this is exactly the kind of work that Eli would have assigned his students but would have never bothered to illuminate for them, would have wanted them to simply struggle with. But he's a huge influence. Um, in the 50s, the story that that passage comes from is especially influential to me, was especially meaningful to me because of the ways it broke almost every workshop rule you could ever care to name. Um, it jumps around. It uses summary rather than scene. Um, it doesn't have uh, an exact arc to it, a narrative arc. It's a more kind of temporal and historical arc that takes a while to emerge and it doesn't really emerge until well after the fact from a distance. It's a remarkable story that I feel like gave me permission to break a lot of rules. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. My guest is Max Winter, author of the novel Exes. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was something that was tricky, that you had to spend a lot of time editing, or something that you just like how it turned out? I'll read something that in the key of the former. You know, you, you, you always hear the story about how the first chapter, or the first paragraph, is always the most polished one in the book, and how that's the one that the author has just worked on and worked on and, and crafted and polished over and over and over again. Um, that wasn't the case 
with my book or that isn't the case because it's really in many ways the the freshest newest thing in the book i worked at great length with my editor julie bunton to shape this book by the time we were done it it was a very different book than the one we had started with the manuscript we had started working on a year earlier and as a result the first chapter is really the newest chapter in it so i'm, I'm going to read the uh first page because that's one that i rewrote in so many different ways so many different times my landlord didn't want to call the cops for five years he'd been shuffling me from empty place to empty place while he fixed up the 30 or so eyesores my grandfather sold him he felt bad about my brother but bad only gets you so far Smith Hill was the end of the line. Two babies had fallen out of windows that year alone, and now a guy was walking around with a sword. If you touched the stove and the refrigerator at the same time, you got a shock that felt like a punch in the heart. I'd wet my hands and grab hold and come to in another room. I told them I needed one more month for Eli, and he just shook his head. I could get six bills for this place easy, he said. Seven, even. He cracked a window, zipped his jacket. He went to open the kitchen cabinets, which held what one expects to find in kitchen cabinets, but also other things. Five years is a long time, one of us added. Ah, hell, my landlord said in a different voice. He was breathing through his nose for one thing. Your grandpa used to tell me I was like a Jew. Luongo, he would say, in my eyes, you're a Jew. And from him, I took it. I'll take it, I'd say like it was the first time he told me. His eyes were wet, like men sometimes get near the end. He towed an unplugged cord to see where it led and shook his head when it did. Jesus, Clay, this is your icebox. You were supposed to take care of things, keep an eye out. That's two different jobs, I said. A couple minutes later and he was still shaking his head. I watched him through the bedroom window. For two blocks I could hear his truck rattle. No wonder Grandpa Ike liked him. He'd always known his grandkids weren't cut out for the family business, but still. And do you want to say anything about that? Just just getting Clay in that place, that place of desperation, where he couldn't sort of sit by and take his time any longer, was actually quite tricky on a plot level even. Just trying to find the scenario where enough would be enough and he would have to hurry up and make his last best effort. Fisher cut bait with his attempt to make sense of Eli's absence was really quite tricky um, because I wanted it to feel organic and I wanted it to be um, sort of logical and immediate and pressing and physical. And so that's how I discovered this character Luongo, this man who took over his grandfather's business who was the real son in some ways, and his replacement, as it were. So that was what set the plot into motion, really. And finding that took a long time. Um, and so I, 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 so much of the book is about places that you can no longer live in, spaces that you can no longer occupy for one reason or another. So having an eviction ended up being and this isn't the only eviction in the book, but starting with that eviction enabled so many things to fall into place. And it was surprising it took me that long to figure it out. 
Where do you write? Wherever I can. I wrote at least 25% of this revision in playgrounds while my son was playing after school. Um, and I would bring a beach chair and like a lap desk and just set up under a shade tree. And I would get some looks from parents who weren't sure what I was doing. Um, and I think they were relieved to find out I was writing a book. But if they saw the book I was writing, they maybe would be retroactively concerned again. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I cook a lot. You know, I, I make all three meals for my family, either to pack away or to eat together every single day. And cooking means a lot to me. Everyone thinks I'm joking when I say that my next book is going to be a cookbook, but I really want it to be. Cooking, I love for a lot of reasons, but mainly because it's the opposite of writing. Um, everybody needs it. Everybody's always in the mood for it. And it is just something to share. And it's physically present. Just the tactile experience of cooking is such a welcome antidote to the the more sort of fraught, abstract struggles of writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? It, it used to be my wife, but eventually she was like, okay, that that's enough. <laughs> um, and she's a great critic. She gives me really good advice always. It, despite the fact that she's a visual artist first and foremost, and she's French, so English isn't even her first language. Um, and she always gives me incredibly incisive first reads on things. Like she knows before I do whether I'm on the right track or not. But when it comes to time to share pages, um, drafts, I go to my, um, my buddy from grad school, Matt Summel, who I refer to as my writing husband, because that's what it feels like. And, and, I, and I'm his writing husband. I mean, we share pages back and forth constantly. And how have you dealt with rejection? Pretty well. I'm old for a debut novelist. I'm 45. And that from a distance can sound like a late bloomer or someone who came to it late. But it's like, no, I've just been struggling with it for 15 years, racking up the rejections, racking up the doubts. I'm pretty comfortable with them now because... You don't write a book like mine if you don't understand not only that not every book is for everyone, but that certain books absolutely shouldn't be for anything resembling everyone. Um, when you make strong choices, you inevitably limit your audience, but I, I'm fine with that. And of course, not every book is for everyone. So I, I always take rejection in the spirit in which it's intended which is, this is not for me. And I'm like, of course not. That's fine. Um, that would be insane of me to expect that it would be for everyone. And what is your favorite word? Fakakta is my favorite word. I always laugh when other people use it. I'm always delighted and surprised by it. It's a wonderful word. I mean, I love Yiddish for a lot of reasons, not the least of which are all the Ks. And K sounds, of course, are funny. But by the extent to which it manages to be onomatopoeic, um, I don't even know if that's how you pronounce that word, onomatopoeic, of things that are abstract, <laughs> you know, like does for cock to have a sound? Yes, it sounds like that. <laughs> and I, I love its expressiveness and its humor. It's built into the language itself. 
Do you want to say what it translates into? Up. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Max Winter, author of the novel X's. Our interview was recorded on Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft Dialogue on Writing and click like on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>